Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9, and that can be found on page 1177. So Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he, who is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Rachel, thank you very much. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Ephesians chapter 6, and let's pray for God's help as we look at his word together. We've just been singing, how sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary message of the gospel. We thank you for what we've been seeing in Ephesians about what Christ has done for us. We thank you that when we were dead, he made us alive. And Father, now as we think about what it means to be the people of Christ, as we think about what it means to live for him, please help us out of love and gratitude to be the people our Savior would have us be. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Imagine you walk into a bookshop. You're trying to find the next novel to read and you're scanning around to trying to find a title that grabs your, uh, grabs your eye. Perhaps you're actually online these days uh, in the Kindle shop or the, um, the iBook store and you're, you're browsing around, flicking through, trying to find the next book to read. And across the room, uh, across the screen, your eye uh, lands on a, on a book title. It's just there on the shelf. It says this down the spine, The Spirit-Filled Life. My story. Uh, maybe you might be put off by the um, sort of arrogance of the title, but you might be intrigued. Uh, what kind of book would you expect to read just from that title down the spine? If you picked it up, what would you expect to find page after page talking about incredible experiences, great uh, spiritual highs, emotional um, moments of, of real wonder and awe? Would you uh, expect to hear um, times of Uh, real awareness of God's presence? Would you expect to read chapters about superhuman insights and strength? Perhaps chapters on incredible acts of love and and kindness from the book entitled The Spirit-Filled Life. What would you put 
in the book, if you were writing a book called The Spirit-Filled Life, what would you put in the chapters? If the Apostle Paul was writing the book called The Spirit-Filled Life, well, then he would probably include a number of chapters, but right near the beginning of the book, he would include a chapter looking at a family on a Tuesday night, having dinner together, talking, chatting about the day, planning what they'd do that evening. The next chapter would be on someone on Wednesday morning in the office, maybe standing next to the photocopier, chatting, maybe typing away on the keyboard. Or maybe someone uh, in the classroom, in the lecture theater, uh, listening, writing, thinking, talking. Uh, those two uh, moments, the family and the workplace, would be very much in the center of Paul's book. Uh, tonight we come to that part of Ephesians which people tend to rush over. Uh, if Ephesians was a box of celebrations, then this little reading tonight would be the, the Milky Way bars left over at the end after everything else had been taken. Uh, we've seen some wonderful moments in Ephesians. We've, we've had some real uh, moments of insight. The, uh, the reminder of God's master plan for the world. We've heard about Christ uh, making us alive even when we're dead. We've heard about how we were loved before the beginning of time. How, how we are now God's people called together, united with a common purpose. There have been some wonderful, thrilling moments. And then tonight we come to those bits of Ephesians which feel, well, they feel a bit more mundane. Family, work, it's the stuff of Monday mornings, the, the deadlines, the, the slogs, uh, I guess we might include the, the lectures here, the, the classroom, thinking about work, it's, it's the daily slog stuff, it doesn't quite feel as exciting or, or as um, momentous as the rest of Ephesians, but that's not how Paul sees it. This whole section began back in chapter 5, verse 18, which we looked at a few weeks ago, when Paul made this famous, uh, that famous appeal. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be Spirit-filled, says Paul. He goes on to explain in the next few verses what it looks like to live a Spirit-filled life. He talks about how we speak um, truth to one another as we sing. He says in verse 20 that we should give thanks to God the Father for everything. But then in verse 21, it's still the same sentence in the original. Still the same thought. Still explaining what it looks like to live a spiritual life. Paul says, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you want to know what a spiritual life looks like, Paul says, it looks like Christians submitting to one another. And then begins this section, wives and husbands we saw last week, and now tonight, children and parents, slaves and masters, the family and the workplace, two key areas where we are called to submit to one another. In other words, if you want to understand what a spirit-filled life looks like, then look no further than the home and the office. And so tonight, what we are looking at is not some afterthought in Ephesians, some kind of mundane bit we leave to one side. No, this is right at the center of what Paul would say to us. We've been hearing about God's master plan for the world. 
how God wants to bring all things together under one head, even Christ. And if that master plan is to come into fulfillment and is going to be seen by a watching world, then that master plan must become a reality in the home and also in the office. And so what happens in our home at 7.45 tomorrow night? Or what happens at 10.34 Monday morning in the office? Those moments are crucial if we are to be God's people, living out God's master plan in the world. So Paul's words to us tonight about home life and office life, they are not afterthoughts. They are crucial for us. And even if our regular experience is not uh, now in a, in a particular family or if we are not in the office now, if that is not our first-hand experience, we still have a role as members of the wider family of Christ to help and support those who have particular roles in the family or in the office. This is a, written to the whole family of Christ. We need to stand together as family. So what does it look like to live a spirit-filled life? That's our question tonight. And first we look at the home. Verses uh, one to four of chapter six. Uh, Paul begins with children. Verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. These are strong words. Uh, Last week when Paul uh, wrote to wives and husbands, he said to wives that they are to submit. In that sense, Paul was asking wives to freely choose that course of life, a free choice. But here Paul says to children much more strongly, children, obey. And the rationale, the the motivation that Paul gives for this obedience is in the Lord, Paul says. It's the same idea as elsewhere when he says, as to the Lord. It is because of their allegiance to Christ, their, their loyalty to Christ, that children should choose to submit, to obey their parents. In fact, it's striking uh, time and again in our passage tonight how often Paul appeals to Christ as the context that we are living in. Uh, We are those who are in Christ, who are serving the Lord, who are living for the Lord. And uh, to know him, to love him, to have experienced his life-giving, sins-forgiving salvation is to live a life of allegiance and loyalty to Christ. Here is what it looks like in practice. Children, it may not always be easy to obey your parents. They might be annoying. In fact, they almost certainly will be annoying at times. They might be difficult to live around. But Christ would have us obey them. And so we should, out of loyalty to Christ. There is a further motivation that Paul gives for the obedience. He says at the end of verse 1, that this way of living is right. Paul doesn't mean that it will always feel right to live this way when our parents ask us to come home at a certain time or perhaps to not go and see that particular film with our mates even though everyone else is going to watch the film. It may not feel right in that moment. No, it is right because it is what God would have us do. It is right because that is how God has ordered the world. Now, Paul goes on to quote the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, the fifth commandment. And he says, Honor your father and mother. 
This is God's enduring pattern for families that goes across all generations. And it is right for families to live this way. And if we do live this way as families, notice the promise that God gives us. Verse two again, honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I remember when I was uh, first learning to drive, being a typical young male, uh, before I tried driving at all, I thought I would be amazing at driving. I thought I would just nail it straight away. Uh, My dad took me out for my first driving experience, and um, when I was shifting from first gear to second gear, somehow I managed to pull the whole gear lever out of the floor of the car, and I was left holding it in my hand. And at that point, I realized, and my dad realized, that I probably needed some lessons, um, some proper lessons. I was still pretty confident that I could nail it early on. I, I remember the first two minutes of my first ever driving lesson. I was doing incredibly well. Um, and my driving instructor pulled me over and he said, Pete, look, um, let's be honest. It's going to be a long time until we need to trouble the examiner. Okay, you've got a lot of weeks coming up of you and me sitting here together. You see, I thought there there was a right way to drive the car. I thought it would be easy, but my instructor had a whole different understanding of what the right way to drive a car was. And over the next few weeks, he told me about mirror signal maneuver and how to use your hands in the steering wheel and how to merge and uh, all about the speed limits and roundabouts. And some of the laws felt very arbitrary, very annoying, just there to wind you up, to make you fail your first test. But actually, those, those laws about driving, they're not there to annoy you. They're there to, to keep you safe. If I drive at 50 in a 30 zone, then I can't expect to live long in the land and to prosper. And I had to learn the right way to drive, not just to tick a set of boxes about rules, but the right way to drive in order to live and drive safely and to be safe around others. And I think so too with family life. There is a a right way and a wrong way to do family. And the Lord gives us the right way to live. Here is the pattern. Children are to obey parents. And it's not here to annoy us, to wind us up. It's here because this is the way to a good life. This is how families work best and how they flourish and are blessed. Now look, Paul's not promising to families, that if children just obey enough, that somehow the whole family will win the lottery and have a wonderful life. Now, that's not what Paul's talking about. And this side of heaven, we will always experience a life of of brokenness to some extent. Uh, We won't find the perfect family experience until the new creation. But I do think Paul is saying that in the moment, in the present now, if families go this way, if they live God's way, that they will experience a goodness in their family life, a sense of rightness, that family life will work better, that parents and children will get on better. They will bring um, their gifts and abilities together for the good. There won't be as much friction and fighting. There is a blessedness about living God's way. And so children, even if we think our parents are being daft or unreasonable, even if we think they don't understand we would do well to obey them, to heed their wisdom, to follow their requests. And I think particularly, and we'll see this in a moment in more detail, particularly, children, when it comes to when our parents are teaching us about the Lord. 
when they are laying out for us the ways of the Lord, we would do well to heed their instructions about what it means to follow God, about the choices we make, the standards we adopt, the the friends we keep, how we do our lives. We would do very well to heed our parents in those moments. Just on that, some of us might be wondering here tonight, uh, what about if my parents aren't Christians? And there may be many of us here tonight for whom we don't have Christian parents. What do we do then? Do we still obey them? How does that work in the Lord? Well, I think, yes, we do. This order of creation is for all families, except when our parents would ask of us something that is not in keeping with the Lord's will. Then our loyalty is first and foremost to the Lord and not to our parents. But when it comes to issues like the washing up, we're getting back at a certain time, then yes, we should obey our parents then. Others might be wondering, how long should I obey my parents? Some of us are parents ourselves. Uh, some of us have um, left homes and we were married and uh, we've, we've changed how we relate to our parents in fundamental ways. What does it mean for us to obey our parents as we go through life in the different stages of life? Well, I think the principle still remains that children are to uh, obey or honor our parents. That is God's enduring plan for us. Uh, what it looks like may well change in the seasons of life. But the principle remains the same. As we move away from home, we may not be under the direct supervision of our parents in the same way, but we should still honor them. Uh, We should uh, talk to them. We should keep them involved in our lives, keep them up to speed with what we're doing. Uh, We should visit them. We should, I think, seek their advice. If we are making a big decision, ask them what they think. Include them in our lives at that level. Seek their counsel. They know us well. They might just have some wisdom to pass on to us. If we get married, again, there'll be a change. Uh, The Bible says that when uh, we get married, we we leave our old families and we we create a new family. Again, that will change dynamics, how uh, married couples relate to their parents. But again, we are to honor our parents. What about those for whom uh, they have lost their parents? Their parents have died. What does this mean for for us if that is the case? Well, I guess we can still honor our parents, even if they have died, by the way that we treat the rest of the family, our siblings, our wider family. Uh, We can, I think, still continue to live out the patterns and ways that they gave to us, respecting uh, their wisdom and their ways in our lives. So here is a snapshot of the spirit-filled life. Children obeying parents. It might sound mundane. It might sound at the edge of what really matters, but not for Paul. And then Paul turns to his, his focus to fathers. Uh, he's been talking about parents in general, how children should, be to, should uh, obey both father and mother, but now he turns his focus to fathers. Verse four. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I guess most fathers don't start the morning by thinking, brilliant, another new day. 
I can't wait to exasperate the kids. I'm guessing that's not how most fathers begin their days. Actually, it's much much worse than that. You see, we don't need to plan to exasperate. We can just do it without even trying, without even thinking about it. You see, to exasperate our children just comes easily. It comes naturally. It comes without thinking. Fathers, we can exasperate our children in all kinds of ways. By being inconsistent. By changing the rules from one child to the next or from one day to the next. We can be exasperating by being arbitrary. Picking one small detail, making that the big thing. Uh, We can be exasperated by putting our foot down over issues that don't really matter or by pretending to care and listen when we aren't really engaged with what is being discussed. We can be exasperating when fathers respond with unnecessary severity. Uh, And these ways of being exasperating, they don't need planning. They They don't need a strategy. They will just happen in the course of family life. But in stark contrast, do you see what won't happen all by itself? Do you see what won't happen without a clear strategy? Training and instruction in the Lord. This won't happen on its own, fathers. I fear increasingly that uh, the way that society portrays the role of fathers is to make sure there's enough money in the wallet, uh, and that's fine. Fathers are often incredibly busy, working long and demanding hours. They come home tired from work with very little left to give to the family. But this is not what Paul would say to fathers. It is not just enough to have money in their bank account. But rather, fathers should be those who teach and instruct those at home. We might have time with our children, but is it good time? time when we are awake and alert and have the energy to do this. What would it look like for fathers to lead their families this way? Well, in Deuteronomy, uh, just after we have that commandment about children obeying fathers, in the next chapter, chapter 6, we have a wonderful picture of what a family should look like as they follow the Lord. Uh, Moses says that uh, parents, and I guess particularly fathers, should impress God's ways on their children. When? By talking about the ways of the Lord at home. And when walking along the road. And when you lie down. And when you get up. In other words, in all of life. Looking for those moments just to talk about the Lord. Whether it's in a formal moment. Maybe um, getting the family together to pray and to read the Bible. Or maybe just in those informal moments, playing football in the back garden, going for a walk in the sunshine, driving somewhere in the car, talking about the world and God and and bringing those two together and showing how to be a Christian uh, impacts our lives in the world. Maybe it means talking about the sermon over lunch. It doesn't mean anything spectacular, nothing radically different. And yet what we do as fathers would be hugely significant. I'm very grateful for my uh, own parents. I remember growing up that my dad, even though it wound me up frequently, would insist that every morning we prayed together as a family over the porridge or the eggs. Every morning. 
Uh, he made sure that on Sunday mornings before we went to church, he got us together for a little Bible study as a family. Again, I didn't always like it, but I learned so much about the Lord in those moments. Uh, my father was a great example of someone who kept talking about what he was learning, the books he was reading, the stuff he was reading in his devotions. He just talked about it. It just came out naturally. And as a young lad, it made a huge difference to me. And so Paul would say to fathers, you are to be those who uh, train and instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. And do notice, if you would, that Paul doesn't say the main source of teaching and input for our children should come from the youth worker or from the wider church family, although those things are absolutely massively important. No, the main source of teaching should come from the home and in particular, the father. And I know not every home has a father. And we need to think very carefully about as, as a wider church family, how to support those families. But we need to understand the importance of teaching at home. This isn't easy for families. And that is why Paul says this is what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life. We need the spirit to grip us to control us, to empower us, to enable us to live like this as families, children and parents. We can't do it on our own. We need to be praying for our families, praying for our children, our our parents, our fathers, that we would lead and obey well. For the spirit must be at work amongst us for this to happen. And also we need each other. One of the things about Ephesians is that we are not on our own. We're talking about the the nuclear family here tonight, but we are also part of the wider family, the family of of God. And as the wider family, we can talk to one another about our experiences. Children, in your small groups, talk about what it means to be a child and how to submit to difficult parents and what it looks like in practice. Parents, fathers, talk to one another about how you lead your family. Compare notes. If you're struggling, share things. And every once in a while, we run courses here at Fullwood to help families. We run the, um, let me get this right, Gareth mentioned these to me, uh, the gospel-centered family and the gospel-centered marriage. Uh, courses that last five or six weeks, they'll happen here, a cup of tea, and a chance to talk to other people who are married or, or have children, talking about what the gospel means to us in those contexts. And in fact, you can sign up for the next course. We haven't quite published the dates yet, but if you want to find out what, when the next course is, you can sign up uh, across the way in the atrium for both those courses tonight. Here is what a spirit-filled life looks like, or should I say the spirit-filled home. And next, and much more briefly, we need to think about the other context, the workplace. What does it look like to be a spirit-filled Christian at work? Paul says, verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. I think the the closest modern-day equivalent to what Paul is talking about in these verses is our modern-day work context, the, the role of being an employee. He works under an employer, I think also um, students can learn much from this as they sit under the authority of a teacher or a lecturer. I think we can go there as well with application. And Paul is very clear. We are to respect those who are over us. Uh, We are to have sincere hearts. 
I think this means that uh, we are to be those who don't join in with the office backstabbing or the classroom gossip about how bad the teacher is. If we have an issue with our boss, we are to raise it with them directly in an appropriate fashion rather than moaning about them behind their backs. It would mean that if we are asked to do a certain job, then we do that job not to the bare minimum, but to the very best of our abilities in the spirit in which we were asked to do it. Well, then verse 6, Paul says, Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. And so I wonder when our boss walks by, do we subtly change what's on our computer screen so that he thinks that we're doing the work we're meant to be doing? Or when it's time for our annual review, do we make sure that we're doing the kinds of work that we know we're meant to be doing so that when we come to the review moment, we can say, yes, I'm doing this, this, and this. Look, I'm doing the job well, knowing that for the rest of the year we've been ignoring those key areas of work. In the classroom, do we push the boundaries and mess around when the teacher isn't looking or is away and then suddenly we snap back into line when they see us? Don't do this, says Paul. Work with integrity and consistency for this is God's will. This is God's will for us. We've heard lots about God's will in Ephesians. We first heard about it back in chapter one when Paul says God's will is God's master plan for the world to bring all things under Christ. In other words, God's will is this global, epic, eternal plan for the world. But do you notice God's will isn't so big, so global, so eternal that it doesn't also include the little things, the little people. God's will includes individual Christians in individual workplaces, in those small moments when no one sees. His will includes integrity and consistency, and working when no one sees. Which is remarkable because God is big enough to have a master plan that fills the universe, and yet he's not so big that he doesn't see every little deed, and every little action, and every little motive in our hearts. And so Paul says to all of us who are under authority, work with this kind of integrity, at work because it is the Lord's will for us. Which means that if we find our jobs mundane and frustrating, if we can't see the point of our studies, then remember here in Ephesians 6 that to work well, to work with sincerity and consistency is enough to please God. We don't have to be a surgeon or um, an astronaut or whatever it is to be impressive to God. He wants, rather, a spirit-filled Christian. He works like this. And then verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. It's incredible. The Lord who has made the universe sees every little action that we do, And he notes it down. He's aware of it. He cares about it. Enough that uh, on that final day when Christ returns and he meets us face to face, he will know exactly what we've done. 
He will be able to recount and collect the thoughts and apply it to each one of us, and he'll give to us the right reward. Uh, That is, uh, I think, the focus of what Paul is saying. Not that we will experience in this life now a particular blessing for working well, but that when Christ returns, that is the moment of joy and reward when we meet our master face to face. Those are the words that Paul says to slave servants. Uh, Finally, very quickly, masters, verse nine. Paul says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. He's not, I think, saying to masters that they should submit to their slaves in that sense, but rather they should fulfill their role as masters, also recognizing that there is a true master who sits over and above them that they are not the masters of the universe. That is the same way they are to do their role. I think that we see that point at the end of verse nine. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. They are not the heads of the world. Jesus Christ is. He sees everything. He cares about everything. Bosses lead that way. The master who sees everything looks down. He sees no favorites. He sees slave and master as being equal in his sight. Therefore, masters, don't become arrogant or big-headed in your roles. If you are a boss, an employer, don't let it go to your head. For you are not the master of the universe. Only Jesus is. Look, I'm afraid our time is up. There is so much more that we could say. We could think through so much more in terms of application about these two big areas of family and work. And please, in your small groups, when you come to look at this, uh, talk about these things together. Help each other work these things out in practice. But let's keep remembering tonight as we come to a close that what might feel like the mundane, the everyday, the slog, is actually the very place where God wants us to be filled with his spirit and bringing about his master plan for the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of the ways that you have given us here tonight. We thank you for the the heart that comes behind it, the desire that we would live a life of, of fulfillment and blessing and that the world would see that you are a good and wise God. Father, please, would you give us power by your spirit tonight, for we desperately need it. Power to be uh, your people, able to live this distinct and attractive life, able to live for you when it's difficult, when circumstances around us are trying. Father, we long that others would see us and say, what a Lord Lord they serve. Uh, Tell me about that, Lord. And we long that we would be light in the darkness. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.